is Faith Revisited. Welcome to the podcast. On Faith Revisited, we'll talk about our own church as we're constantly trying to adapt to an ever-changing world as a downtown historic church. We'll talk about United Methodist Matters as our denomination faces an exciting and uncertain future. We'll explore church leadership in the 21st century. And we'll talk to different faith leaders about their perspectives of religion today, how we can be more authentic, stop alienating people, and how faith is more important than ever to connect us to God and each other. Hey, maybe we'll touch on a topic that speaks to exactly where you are in your faith. We won't know until we try, right? Let's do it. Hello, friends. This is Reverend Ben Gosden here uh, with my dear friend, Ariana Burksteiner. We have a very special conversation that we're going to have today um, about our current events, uh, racial injustice in America, what what it means just, uh, and really from the perspective we were talking off air of just two good friends uh, sharing about it. And so uh, from the outset, just so that you know, we have two audiences we're speaking to. Uh, this will go out on the Faith Revisited podcast, the audio version of this conversation. And then this will also air on the uh, Trinity Church Facebook page um, so that uh, the video portion can be seen uh, on there. But Ariana, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, Ben. It's good to see you. You too. Tell us a little bit, just so our audience can get to know you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Um, So I am the executive director of the Emmaus House Soup Kitchen. Uh, We're located in downtown Savannah and we provide um, hearty meals, basic needs services to the homeless and hungry population downtown. Um, Our goal is to create kind of a respite space for people who um, feel disenfranchised, um, where people who feel like they're, you know, dehumanized in a way on a regular basis. They can come here and get a hot meal um, and a smile and a good morning, how are you, um, and and get that dignity that I think all of us deserve. Um, so that is our mission. That's our goal. Um, I am uh, happily married, two kids. Um, I'm a native of Los Angeles, California. It was a really long walk to get here, but I made it. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to get to that other, that other side of the country. No. Um, I've been here about 12 years now, and I feel like Savannah is home, um, more home than California ever was. So um, I love this city. Um, I, I, I'm obsessed with um, the amount of just incredible, amazing community leaders that we have uh, that we have here, and I'm just honored to, to be part um, of that group. So that is me, 100%. I sit on the board for... Um, the Clemente course in the humanities. I sit on the board for Shelter from the Rain. I am a proud Metro Rotarian. Um, gosh, what else do I do? I co-founded um, the Cure Initiative, which is connecting and understanding racial equity. Um, and that's from a perspective of um, and like an anti-racism Christian movement. Um, that was a, a project that our respective churches um, Connection United Methodist, Methodist Church and Trinity came together to to spearhead that. Um, 
And gosh, what else? What did I miss, Ben? I do a lot. <laughs> well, I, I will um, tell I'll tell yeah, the audience the first time that I met you, um, and, and it was it was unforgettable for me. Um, so before I served Trinity Church, I served a church across town, Aldersgate United Methodist Church, and it was a very struggling church yeah. and a trans what we I guess in the politically correct way, call a transitional neighborhood. What it means is it was formerly a white church that found itself over 30 years or so now in a predominantly um, uh, neighborhood of predominantly black and brown people. And they were struggling to adapt to the neighborhood. And so we decided at some point that the church either had a choice. It could either uh, close which it was going to eventually do, or it could reimagine itself in different ways. And so through a series of events, um, the, the, the person who's now the, the pastor of Connection Church that, that you mentioned, uh, Reverend Michael Colbreth, we were friends and we said, you know, let's hatch this crazy idea where you bring your African-American church and I bring my mostly white church together and we create a purpose, purposefully multiracial church in the deep South. And so uh, we did that. But I remember one of the first meetings that we had, it was sort of our visioning meeting and there were members of each church and a third church got added in and um, sweet people, everybody in the room, I think was like 50 or older, except for me and you. Yeah. And I remember which was fine, whatever. I mean, that's just the way the churches were made up at the time. And and I yeah. remember we were all going around sharing and there was this electric force that came, that radiated off of you. And I walked out of that meeting and I said, oh, that young woman is a part of this church. This, this thing's going to go. Um, so I, I've just, I've never forgotten it. Just the, 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 the openness, the honesty, the, the brilliance, the, the willingness to have imagination for something new, um, yeah. and the passion is just, it, it was, yeah. it was unbelievable. So it was, it was a joy, uh, to meet you there and to continue our friendship, even after I, uh, moved churches across town. So I'm so glad that you're here. Um, I guess we just begin. Thank you. How, how are you? And, and, and by that, I, I don't mean in the casual, oh, I'm fine. I mean, in the, yeah. over the last couple of weeks, in the midst of all this chaos and injustice, what are you feeling? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I get asked that question a lot, and it's crazy because it's, there's a level of, I don't want to call it PTSD just because I'm not going to, there are people who really are experiencing that in a real way, but there is reinforced trauma. This is not mm-hmm. new for me. Um, you know, I grew up hearing about Emmett Till. Um, I grew up hearing stories that my grandmother told me growing up in rural Jackson, Mississippi of all the things that she's had to encounter. Um, her brothers being beaten almost to death. Um, for, for smiling at a white woman. Um, these are, you know, stories that I grew up with and, um, and hearing the stories of my grandparents going through the civil rights movement. Um, you know, as a black person, you sort of grew up with all of this knowledge already. Um, and an already intrinsic fear or concern of, or not concern or fear, but more of a, a heightened, um, understanding of your role um, when dealing with the police, right. Or when dealing in, in a room full, full of people who don't look like you. Um, and so 
you know, you go through life and you get sort of lulled in this false sense of security until you're reminded again of your blackness um, and your blackness in a negative way, in a negative light. Um, and so it's just, it's just sort of reinforced trauma. All of this has been, um, I have two sons, five and two, and I'm raising chocolate skinned black boys in this world. And that's, um, this has all been just a reminder of how incredibly important this movement is, uh, just for the safety of my kids and not just safety for, for my kids, but more of a, um, the right to a full, um, and plentiful, bountiful, joyful life, um, mm-hmm. uninhibited. My, my children are children of God and they deserve that. Um, and my hope is that, um, you know, through all of this, it's painful. It hurts. Um, I'm used to it, but people who are not used to it are starting to understand. And that I think is beautiful for my goal and my kids eventually living in a world where, um, they don't have to be in fear and they don't have to, um, feel less than. So I don't know how I feel. I feel, I feel, like there's some reinforced trauma. I feel exhausted. Um, I feel hopeful that this whole process is transformative in that, again, this isn't news. You know, none of this is surprising for me. Um, this isn't surprising for other people of color or other black people. Um, but the response from the white community is surprising and encouraging and hopefully that I feel hopeful that that is, um, the, a catalyst for, for something, um, for something, for something that will change, hopefully. Yeah. I, I, since we set this up, uh, the, the arranged this meeting, I, I have thought about your sons and, mm-hmm. and I have a three-year-old son. And so they're all kind of right there together. Um, and, yeah. and those are just three of the most beautiful little boys that, no. that you could ever imagine, you know, and, 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 and what's so amazing. Yeah. And, and, and I'm just, I'm, I, I catch myself feeling so white ignorant about this is that if, if we, if you came to my house today, our boys would have the time of their lives playing together. But the reality is that in 15 years, you will have had very different conversations with your boys that I'll never have to have with mine. And that's, I mean, that's, that's crazy to think about, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, um, and there's a part of me too that that you know you just like you almost feel like well glad the white folks finally decided to show up at the party, but I do feel that there is a there's something different this time. I hope I think and there feels yeah. like a, a tectonic shift, and it may it may just be the power of um, cell phones. Technology has made this time around more visceral. You know, whereas all these other, I mean, and we've seen cell phone videos before, but um, uh, a friend of mine said that Ahmaud Arbery very much was, was, was John the Baptist, a voice, in, you know, preceding, mm. because it, it kind of said, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then George Floyd immediately following just, I think I created some tipping point, some, some boiling point that we, yeah. that things could be different. How, uh, so yeah. go ahead. 
I was just going to say, there's also an element of the pandemic. I mean, people have been yeah. inside um, and they don't have the, the regular, you know, hustle and bustle of life that aids in distraction. Right. Yeah. Um, and that gives people time to really notice these things or pay, pay, give it the attention that it's due. So, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of elements involved in all of this, for sure. One of the phrases that I'm hearing more and more and I'm learning about more and more is is anti-racism or, or yeah. how to be anti-racist. Yeah. One of the things I feel as a white person very convicted of is that for most of my life, I've been raised to not be racist. I, I've not been. I mean, my mother's very open minded. Now, my grandfather uh, was actually he was delivered by Governor George Wallace's father. Governor Wallace's father was a doctor in Eufaula, Alabama, and delivered my grandfather. My grandfather sat on the school board in Eufaula, Alabama, and you just imagine an angry, racist white person on the Eufaula, Alabama school board in the 1960s. That was my grandfather. Oh, wow. But there was a generational shift because my grandmother was a very soft-spoken Christian woman who just quietly, she was a stay-at-home mom, and he was a traveling insurance salesman. So she just determined that she was going to raise her children to not be racist. And, and it worked, but that's not enough anymore to just not be racist. It it's, it's time to be anti-racist. And so if you're for white people who are just encountering that, I I, I don't want to put the burden of education on you, but, but how do we understand or begin to understand what, what, what that means to be anti-racist? Yeah. So I think a lot of the time, um, you, I almost call it like the R word. Like people get so offended by the word racist. Like mm-hmm. it, you have like a visceral reaction to the word, right? Um, and so I think, I'll, I guess I can put it in like a scenario. So let's say, um, let's say there's a, um, a fight that happens right in front of you. And it's a, you know, racially in, involved fight. There's a, a white guy beating up a black guy and, and you're saying there and you, you don't do anything, but someone goes, Hey, why are you guys beating up that black guy? Are you racist? No, I'm not racist. Right. You're not, you're not physically hitting him, but there's an element of being anti-racist would be to, to physically get involved. So there's a, there's a level of action involved in being mm-hmm. anti-racist. Um, obviously you're not, <clears throat> You know, no one's going to call you racist for just because you didn't get involved in the fight. But to actively be anti-racist is to stand into that person's face mm-hmm. and say, this is not okay. You need to stop. What you're doing is not only racist, but it's not Christian. And this is not what we do. And, and, and really standing up and using your voice and your privilege to call it out, um, and to take that action that that's really what what being anti-racist is um and i think that there's this feeling of having to um you know shift your whole world around and change everything that you do and you know with knowledge comes responsibility and there's this you know anxiety around that like i'm sure you know i don't know i can't claim to, to understand what it's like to, to, to be white and to have that privilege, but I can understand feeling a sense of responsibility and, and that added pressure. Um, but I feel like it's just really incredibly important to understand that all that's really needed is for white people to acknowledge blackness Mm -hmm. and to vocalize 
when it's being victimized or when it's being villainized and just see it and say something um and to just stay educated and and that's that's the big thing is that we didn't learn i didn't learn about black history until i was in college i learned nothing in my orange county california school um i felt very very cheated of a lot of information um and so there is a lot of information out there um amazing pieces of literature um, I can even, I'm sure I can just send you the whole cure catalog of all of the literature that we've gone through, but, um, just stay educated and, and there's, there's a level of, you know, as, as someone of color that would look at the situation of two, as a, of a, um, you know, a black guy and a white guy getting to a, fi a fist fight over something and the white guy standing there, you know, I'm not racist, but I'm not getting involved that lack of action speaks volumes to me, mm -hmm. right? So if I'm in the, in the comments section on Facebook, which I highly suggest you never, ever do. I do it all the time, but don't be like me. I go in those comment sections and it's just a bad plan. Um, <laughs> but if you do and you see someone saying something that is incredibly ignorant, um, even if the goal is, the goal is not, necessarily to change their mind because some people are just going to be stuck in their behavior and they're going to be stubborn but the action of saying this is not right i don't agree with this this is why you're incorrect um and just standing up for black voices it penetrates in a way that it doesn't when i when i do it i just come across as an angry angry black woman and my you know my husband or my brother would just be you know threatening and and scary uh, but when a white voice does it, it penetrates and it's, and it's, um, it's effective. And that I think is the most important, um, the most important thing. So, so, and I want to, I want to build on that because, and, and, and I'm going to use examples that, that, that I have heard and experienced and frankly, you know, in, in, in my earlier life shot away from, I'm just going to be honest, but if you're white, I would be, I would bet all the money in my bank account that you have experienced a, a, a less violent, but well, a less physically violent, but no, no less violent racism in your life and, and not said anything. For example, I can remember I dated a girl very seriously in high school and very good Christian family, you know, the Baptist church in town and just holier than thou, pure, all these other things. Mm -hmm. But her father, who was a led a Bible study and all this other stuff, very good man and all this, whatever. If one of her male cousins, you know, had a family gathering, got together and, oh, you know, hey, you know, so-and-so's dating somebody new, a new girl. The first thing he would always say is, is she black? Wow. <laughs> and, and then, and then chuckle. <laughs> and it was like, and no one said a word. And it was like this accepted thing that, 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 you know, let's make sure you're not dating black girls now, you know? And, 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 you know, yeah. there, there's a piece of me that, that I need to, you know, be careful because it's not your job to cure my white guilt. But I'm like, why didn't I say anything? Why didn't I rock the boat there? You know, or, 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 or the, the casual, the casual racist joke, or even just the casual, um, how quick it is to link nefarious behavior, you know, a, a, a crime in town or whatever it could be. Well, you know, they're black. And then everyone's, mm -hmm. and everyone's knowing glance goes, oh, yeah, well, hmm. And it's right. like, wait a minute. Why, do, why is that so easy to do? Right. And I don't think white people realize how, how infiltrated just the way we talk, the way, we, the way that we report news and hear our news. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, it's just been, and I think, I'm, I don't know, I could be wrong. You could correct me, but I, the, the effort it took when Ahmaud Arbery was killed in Brunswick, Georgia, an hour, a little over an hour from where you and I sit right now, it took an overt effort to put his high school senior picture out there first because so often when these crimes happen to black men, mm. they pick mug shots or these, these pictures that make them look suspicious. And then we, we immediately jump into the, the whataboutism. Well, what about the fact that he had a drug charge two years ago? Well, what about, right. you know, the fact that he was in that neighborhood and wandering around that house? And what about, you know, you're not supposed to go on someone else's property. And, and it's, it's this logical fallacy of, of whataboutism that just gets us lost in the fact that he lost his life. He was killed for no right. good reason at all. He was unarmed. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and literally hunted down in a neighborhood. Right. So, so for white folks, I mean, those are big, that's a big example, but it's the quiet stuff too. It's just listening yeah. and, and, and hearing and, and just that all too easy link between something negative and, 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 and is, well, so-and-so's black. So, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I remember in, in my hometown, there was a big thing, and I think there still is, about the indoor mall and the idea that indoor – one of the big drawbacks about indoor malls and their closing in favor of strip malls is um, this concern over, quote, unquote, loitering. And what gets unsaid is the indoor malls struggle in towns like my hometown because white people don't want to go to a mall where six or eight you know, black kids could be hanging out in the food court together. It makes them feel uncomfortable, you know? And it's like, well, we, you know, I'm just not going to go back to that mall because Lord only knows what they're up to. It's like, they're just hanging out with their friends. I mean, nobody's done anything wrong. It very well could be, you know, six to eight black kids that go to school together that are part of some club, anime club in school or something (laughs) like studying or, or just, hanging out and, and being young and teenagers. And that's the other thing is that, I'm, man, I was a dumb teenager. I've made some stupid decisions. I think most of us could say oh, yeah. as teenagers that we are just teenagers are dumb. Our brains aren't fully, fully functioning yet. Um, and so why is it that a young black teenager can't be a young black teenager, but a white, a young, you know, white teenager can make stupid decisions, and um, as we all do, and their their outcome is is drastically different. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's the injustices have been talked about and marched about and sobbed about and prayed about for so long that. I don't have answers. I know, um, I know that change can only come when voices are heard and, um, and actual, you know, we vote, we make, make sure that, um, that our elected officials know how we feel. I think that's the, one of the biggest parts of this is not just not saying anything, but it's also making sure that, that you're voting for, for, and even stepping up and, and, you know, running for office that, um, that will actually make these systemic changes. But 
it's just there's not there's not a whole lot that I can say on that because it's like this is just something that's been going on so long that we don't I, I don't have any I don't have any answers for I want my son to be able to hang out with you know his friends in the food court and and feel safe and and other people to feel safe no because my sons are sweet little boys raised by competent black professionals yeah. um, and he's not you know he's not a monolith there are that's just who we are um and so i just i i don't know how how we're going to get there but um and it i i feel like the really the only way that we can get there is doing what we're doing now um and having these conversations and truly i feel like black people need to have our voices heard but also step back and let white conversations happen um because at the end of the day i feel like um if we've been screaming and hollering about this for however many hundreds of years and nothing's yeah. happened this is a conversation that that white people need to have and scream and holler about it um you know in during these protests um i'm always so inspired and it almost brought to tears when i see how um you know protesters black protesters would be in the front of the lines and as soon as the police get start getting aggressive or violent they would just scream white shield and all the white protesters yep. would come to the front and, and i want to get choked up now thinking about it because it's like that feeling of of being seen that's that's actually exactly it that feeling of being seen and feeling protected um and and being and and under and having white people understand what it is what the actual root of the problem is and so i think that can be a metaphor for this entire situation in 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 that um we need a white shield. We need to be able to step back and have white people step up and say, you know what? Um, I'm calling out the racists. I'm calling out the folks who don't get it. Um, and we're going to, we're going to make this happen. We're going to make this work. We're going to fix it together. Yeah. Were you, were you there? We had a protest um, last Sunday or Sunday a week ago here in Savannah and there were so many people there. Were, were you there? I was there in spirit. I, uh, okay. we, yeah, my, my son is immunocompromised. So we had to, I had to oh. just be really. No, I understand that. that. So, so I went and, and that what you're describing happened. Um, I was on the outside. Um, so if, if, if you imagine where Mayor Johnson was talking, imagine to his immediate right. So going towards Abercorn, I was on the outside. Now, part of that is I was wearing a mask and I was trying to keep six feet of distance from people. And, 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 and to their credit, well over 90% of the people wore masks. And those who didn't, people brought extra masks and politely shamed them to put this on. And so it was a very, it was a very safe experience. Mm -hmm. That said, police very kindly, they were so present, but gave space. They had blocked off Bay Street so that nothing bad could happen. We had uh, had someone on social media threaten to drive their car and hit protesters. So police put up a barricade about a block yeah. and a half away. Now here's to your story. Yeah. Uh, about halfway through the protest, people turned around and the police cars got replaced by National Guard um, trucks. Yeah. No one knew the National Guard yep. was coming. And there was a real concern because everyone acted confused that tear gas was coming. And very immediately, mm -hmm. we began to just start moving. 
about a block down as many white people as could just said the hell with this. We, you know, this isn't going to happen this way. Now, luckily police came very quickly and, you know, they radioed and all this other stuff and they explained, Hey, they're, they're an added barricade. So it's, it's safe. Trust me. But for a moment, I mean, there was a real concern and, and yes, you know, to your story, white folks quickly, we, we moved, moved down to create that, that shield because it had been so peaceful and inspiring at that point. We weren't going to let it turn bad, but that's the least white folks can do right now. One, one more local example, just to lift up because we, you know, I feel like with our podcast and with our church, we do have a majority white audience and and I want white people to Mm -hmm. see things differently or at least see beyond what you just assume is normal. So locally, we have two very large events that are treated very differently every spring. Yep, I know exactly where you're going. You know where I'm going with this. What is the big St. Patrick's Day festivities here in downtown Savannah? The second is Orange Crush, a spring break event that happens on Tybee Island. The, The local people and government of Tavia have strategically done all they can to basically outlaw Orange Crush from happening. And why is it different? Orange Crush is, is correct me if I'm, if I use the the wrong description here, but essentially it's um, mostly African-American spring breakers. A lot, a lot of uh, HBC uh, uh, students, you know, come on their spring break and they, this is a spring break event. And because locals are so uncomfortable with black people on their island, on their beaches, you know, all this other stuff, um, they they have put up all kinds of systemic regulations that that have just hurt that event to the point that now they just threaten to arrest you if you come. Now, flip that to downtown Savannah and St. Patrick's Day. Overwhelmingly white. Overwhelmingly white young people. Yep. Now, the concern on Tybee is, well, they're going to drink. They're going to leave trash. They're going to destroy the island. Okay, have you seen a square in downtown Savannah when a bunch of white frat boys get done being drunk and trashing it? Yeah, right, exactly. But we wouldn't dare touch that event because that's – we don't want to admit it. And we say, oh, it's the Catholic Church. Yeah, the Catholic Church doesn't do the parade. It's white – people of, in power who are white want to protect their event – in downtown Savannah, people in power who are white want to hurt Orange Crush because they're uncomfortable with black right. students coming. Same thing, same stupid college kids doing stupid things that college kids right. do. Exactly. I, I, I don't know. That's from my white perspective. That's that's been my experience. I mean, for you, I mean, the, the difference in those two events and how they're treated here locally. Um, well, I will say that with Orange Crush, um, taking place on Tybee, it is a culture clash. Um, and I think there's just an, a necessity for um, for us to be okay with other kinds of cultures. <laughs> no one's expecting, you know, Richard, who's 65, you know, to come outside of his house on Tybee and, you know, do the wobble <laughs> in the middle of Orange Crush with a with a bunch of you know twenty two year old kids, black kids. No one's expecting Richard to do that, um, but but it would be nice if Richard allowed. Richard is f- fictitious, obviously, <laughs> um, but if if 
if we were okay with a different kind of culture in just enjoying this beautiful space that you live in, yeah. um, do, do people need to take a, a, a responsibility for the mess they leave behind universally? Absolutely. Is it okay that there's garbage left behind during Orange Crush? Absolutely not. Is it okay that there's garbage left behind at, at you know, the St. Patrick's Day Parade? Absolutely not. Uh, that's not. That's not the concern. The concern is being uncomfortable with the culture that does not include yeah. you. That has nothing to do with you. Um, I would. I would be honored if different types of cultured want, cultures wanted to experience and and celebrate the beautiful city that I lived in. So. Yeah, and for Tabby people, if, if if they're concerned over the mess left of Orange Crush, they've obviously never been to or paid attention to St. Simons Island and Amelia Island on the Georgia-Florida football weekend, which is 90% privileged white people who absolutely trash both of those beaches um, for, for the quote-unquote world's largest cocktail party. Um, so yeah, it, the culture clash is, is the underlying story there. It's not about trashing. It's not about because college kids are college kids. I mean, if you're gonna okay, fine. You outlaw one, you need to outlaw it all. But but it's 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 that culture clash. Um, here for so just for the average white person, um, who might be listening, who might say, "Well, I don't see color. I'm I'm colorblind." Why why is that not a good thing to say why is that not a good thing to feel yeah I have such a visceral reaction to that um mm -hmm. I guess for context I grew up in Orange County California I went to predominantly white school and I heard that my entire youth and for the mm -hmm. longest I was like okay they don't see color we're all the same that's so nice but that takes me out of the equation that that takes my lived experience um and black experience out of the equation altogether. Mm -hmm. I need people to see my color. I need you to see that I'm a black person and I need you to see that my lived experience is different from yours. I need you to see that the different elements of my lived experience, right? When I go into, um, I just thought of an example that I'm not gonna say. If I walk into, you can say what you want. <laughs> a Coach store, Gucci store. Well, no, I was gonna put I was gonna put some names out, but I'm not gonna. Do oh, okay, that. Oh, I was yeah. thinking about a store on Broughton Street that has actually happened to me. I'm not <laughs> gonna do that. But uh, yo, you in. Uh, but if I walk into a store and I have money and on my credit card that I'm, you know, ready to make a purchase, and I'm walking around and I'm being followed, yeah. and every item that I touch, you know, I'm looked at like I'm gonna put it in my purse, um, and a woman who is the same, you know, same age, same size, same everything as me, except she's white, walks into that same store dressed in the same clothes is not going to, is not going to experience the same thing that I did um, or that I would. And so I need people to see my blackness. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, I need people to see my friend's Mexicanness. I need people to see my friend's whiteness. I need my, people to see my friend's Vietnamese-ness. I, I feel like it is incredibly important for us to not look at a, 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 just one color. Like if you say, I'm, I'm colorblind, I don't see color, that means you're looking at gray. That's so boring. I want that whole bowl of Skittles, mm -hmm. right? I wanna see, I wanna see and be able to grow from different types of cultures and different backgrounds and understand with that comes a, another level of understanding 
um, about how our world works, about how this country works. Um, you know, to experience or to, to ask the questions of Black people, to get the lived experience of Black people helps you understand this country better. A good example, um, I said earlier that my grandmother grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, and she's experienced all kinds of, um, all kinds of stuff. I could do, we could do a whole podcast just on my grandmother. She should really write a book, actually. Um, she grew up in like a shed, spent most of her youth barefoot, would chase squirrels around like it was, you know. Um, so she grew up hearing stories about picnics. Well, you and I hear about picnics and we think a nice little meal outside and a blanket, little picnic basket. But for my grandmother and for a lot of black people um, who are in the know about this, picnics a long time ago were events where white people would find a black person in their community and beat them or hang them publicly. And they would sit around and watch it like it was a movie. And you come outside with a blanket and a meal with your family and you watch the brutal either murder or, or beating of a, of a chosen black person in the community. A lot of white folks don't know about that. That's something that we didn't have in our, in our history books. But this is something that I just know about from learned through my family. Um, that's just that's just an example, but it's just like there's a lot that we just don't know. There's a lot that we don't know, and I think in understanding and connecting with other other people and all the other cultures, um, that helps you to grow as a person. So I don't want people to see, you know, gray when they look at me. I need you to see my blackness, and in my blackness is my 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 ancestors. My grandmother is here. My mother is here. My great grandmother. My great grandfather. I. I am, an, I am the, the legacy of that. Um, and I don't want that to not be seen. Yeah. The, you posted about the, the picnic fact the other day and it just, it, it blew, blew my mind. I mean, had, had absolutely no idea. And, and for the sake of um, um, keeping this, at least a PG podcast, say the word picnic real slow if you're white and begin to understand what that was an abbreviated saying of picnic. Now you just go from there, but that's exactly what you think it sounds like is exactly what, what Ariana's talking about here. And, and, and that's what that meant. That was recreation for white people. That was recreation yeah. for white people. And, 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 and I want to link that to a modern day example that I have to be careful. I'm going to get on a soapbox about this. Right now we have, and I, I, I wish I had a nickel for every white sports fan I've seen posting on Facebook, griping about professional athletes who are not necessarily wanting to jump back into playing sports or at least not do so without certain safety precautions uh, amid all this COVID-19 stuff. Now, for those white sports fans, I want you to step back for a minute and, and, and now that you know about picnics and understand that when you're talking about a sport where the vast majority of the athletes are black and for your entertainment value, you want them to quit griping and moaning about concerns that they might catch a deadly disease or take that deadly disease home to their families or, or, or worse yet, expand it from there. You want, to, you want the teams and the owners to push the players to play. Owners who are mostly white billionaires asking black athletes to be subservient to the rules they set. 
I love sports. I mean, it is, it is my love language, but I'm also very aware that COVID-19 has hit black communities in a disproportionate way than it has white folks. And so for white listeners, just open your mind to see those discrepancies that, that, that we're so quick to say, you know, they need to quit griping and go play sports to entertain me. Think about this history and how all these disparities are created and just shut the hell up and stop perpetuating them for a minute. I guess is what I want to say to them. Cause good Lord, you know, like I'm bored just like everybody else. Go, go watch, you know, a, a classic game or something. Um, yeah, those are powerful, powerful stories, Ariana. As we kind of come to the end of our conversation, I swear we could just talk for, for hours on this. Um, yeah. We're moving into the summer. Life's slowly getting back to some semblance of normalcy. How do we not lose momentum yeah, on our progress? Yeah, that's that's the that's the big question, Um, because even now, you know, we've got these these names that we hear, you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, But, you know, for a while it was Michael Brown, Tamir Rice. It's like there's these cycles of names and I just don't want us to forget the names. And so um, we just just do it. Just remember, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how we maintain the momentum because the momentum can't be lost. This can't just be a trend. Um, it can't be a hashtag. Um, black lives need to matter all the time um, in order for this to change in any way, shape, or form. Uh, this needs to be part of everyone's lives and thoughts. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know how it's going to maintain without, without just continuing the dialogue and talking um, and just making it, I guess, part of your, um, part of your, like, you know, who you are in that um, you'll remember to step up and, and, you know, say it, call it out, speak on it. Um, If this is just hopefully a a large mental um, shift in thinking, to where it can't be a hashtag. It can't be um, something that we just brush over, that we all are um, changing the way that we think um, in a really important way. That's kind of what I'm hoping for um, that will keep this from being just a passing fancy, right? Because um, lives are depending on it. Lives are depending yeah. on if it's so important for us, and it is for us to go out and, and place your, and vote, make your voice heard, if you've placed value in that, it is also incredibly important for you to go out and let your voice be heard when you experience or see any kind of racism or, or and, and being able to step back and see whatever implicit biases you might have. Because I know mm-hmm. I have implicit biases. We all have implicit biases. Um, you know, I, I've walked down the street literally from my office to my car um, and had a group of older white women cross the street across from me as I was coming. Granted, I was in like a t-shirt and jeans and I was looking a little crazy that day, but it, it happens. And so we all have, we all have those, those, those biases. Um, and just if, if we, if we can take it and, and make it personal and say, what can I personally do to 
do my part. And if we're all doing that, there's no way that this will be fleeting. There's no way, you know? Yeah. You know, so a couple of quick words for, for white listeners that, that I want to share, because I've had this conversation with people kind of, you know, one-on-one and, and, and just there's some basic learning that we're all trying to catch up on because the truth is for a lot of us, we've, we've remained blissfully ignorant for too long. Um, So number one, if you're white, and you say Black Lives Matters, um, and someone else comes back and says, no, 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 all lives matter. I want you to understand the difference in those two statements. Yes, all human life matters. We know that, okay? Absolutely. Mm Jesus tells a story about a shepherd who had 100 sheep. 99 of them were safe, and one of them got away. When he went after that one sheep, he never said that the 99 didn't matter. What he did say, though, is this one matters enough that I'm going to go after it. So when people say black lives matter, they're not they're not saying that other lives don't matter. But they are saying that right now it does not seem like black lives matter to enough people. And we need to go after that that injustice and we need to we need to stamp it out. Um, I don't know if you saw, but it, 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 it I mean, I, it, I got choked up watching it. Um, of all white people, the whitest among white of us, Mitt Romney, is marching. Did you see this? Oh, yeah. Marching in Washington. And when, I, I had to clean my glasses off. Oh, my gosh. This, <laughs> this white Mormon man from Utah <laughs> affirmed Black Lives Matter. So, so when you hear your sure white friends push that, sure just, just understand it's not a statement that other lives don't matter, but it is a statement that right now – it just seems like we need to affirm lives that are being unjustly hurt and not cared enough for. So that's, that's one important thing. Another thing for white folks that I have begun trying yeah. to do myself and I've tried to tell people at our church, which we have African-American members, but we're predominantly white. If you're white and you feel uncomfortable right now, lean into that. Lean into the discomfort confronting white privilege is a very uncomfortable experience and it's like an onion. It's just layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. And, and, and did you willfully create these racist systems? No. Have you benefited from them without realizing it? Yes. Should it make you feel uncomfortable? Yes. If we lean into that discomfort, that's the only way we grow. Yeah. You know, like, like, like a seed doesn't become a plant unless the shell of the seed is burst open. Yeah. I, I think for white folks, our emotions, our heart, our, our worldviews need to be burst open right now so that we can grow um, into something better. I don't know. Those are just two quick things that in, in the education piece you lifted up um, earlier is huge. We, and we'll put this out on our faith revisited uh, page as well as our church page. We are in the process of developing anti-racist uh, resources for our church. And by that, the vast majority are going to push toward confronting white privilege because we are assuming that there is a lot of white folks that are going to need to, to, to educate themselves. And so we'll have those resources out. We're doing some summer reading stuff, um, books that we recommend, um, to begin to do this, this hard work so that we can come alongside beautiful people like Ariana and, and others who, who are like, live this your entire life. And, and, and we're just becoming aware of, of, of this. Do you have any final thoughts, any final, anything? 
Um, I would just, um, I would press upon listening to your black friends. If you mm -hmm. don't have black friends, get some. Mm -hmm. um, but right now, I think black people are um, a little raw. And I know that a lot of black people have probably gotten to the point where they're not feeling excited about having to explain sure. all of black existence and the black experience um, you know, as the, the representative, right? Um, and so I feel like, um, you know, love on them, on your black friends, um, tell them that you love them, but don't treat them any differently. Um, I'm starting to kind of notice that I'm getting a lot of like, oh, how are you? And I'm kind of like, good. I just went grocery <laughs> shopping and, you know, my feet hurt a little bit. Like, I'm, I'm, I guess it's more like a, I'm more than, than who I am. I'm a black woman and I'm proud to be black because of my history and, and my ancestors, but I'm also a mom. I'm also an executive director. I'm a boss. I'm a, I'm a wife. I have so much more going on that for me to be kind of put into a victim box is a little frustrating. Yeah. Um, and so I don't, I don't want white people to, to feel like um, this is the time to sort of, um, pity your black friends or, or anything like that. Just, it's, it's so complicated because it's kind of like you want to let your, your friends that you see, you know, are experiencing a lot right now to know that you care about them and please do that. Um, but I just know how it feels to, to feel like all I am to this, to my white friend is their black friend. I just keep, I guess, keep that in mind yeah. um, when, when connecting with your, with your black friends, um, you know, it's a really complicated time and it's really tough, but um, if they're your friends, you know, you've got that connection and that, you know, those are your people. So just be transparent and honest and let them know that you, that you care about them, but don't put them in a box. Yeah, and I think that's so good. And you lift up two more quick things. <laughs> I could just go on and on. That for white people to be aware that it is good to have compassion and sympathy. Um, it's going to be difficult to have empathy because we we have not lived the black experience. But be careful that your sympathy does not accidentally get into exerting white privilege because when you victimize somebody, you still kind of put them in a subservient place. Yep you're not honoring their wholeness. And so, right. yes, like what you said, it, it is good to care for your friends, but it, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's important to validate their whole being and to love them for everything yeah. that they are, including right. being black. Secondly, and this may be the most subtle one of all for white people. You said, if you don't have any black friends, go make some, <laughs> I would push white folks to say, start being aware of your surroundings where you frequent, the beaches you go to, the churches you go to, the places you go to. If you look around those places and there are hardly any, if at all, any black people at all, um, you need to begin to question your playgrounds yeah. and playmates because when you're living in an all-white world and running in all-white circles, there are some destructive things that can subtly uh, seep into your spirit. 
And so make sure that you're going places that are diverse and running in circles that are more diverse and making diverse friends. And that's the way that we're going to educate ourselves is those, those relationships and settings where we see the fullness of America and the mm-hmm. fullness of, of the kingdom of God, you know, and not just a white kingdom. So yeah, I, that's so important. Ariana, I'm so glad that you spent this time with me. Me too. I, I value our friendship very much. So I'm I glad that I'm, I admire you a ton. You are just a nonprofit warrior here in town. Um, and, and you mentioned, you know, great local leaders in Savannah and you are right there in the upper echelon of them. And so I'm glad that you're here and that you are exerting your leadership and your brilliance because uh, our community sure needs it. Thank you. God bless you. All right. So if you are listening on the Faith Revisited podcast, you can uh, follow us, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, leave us a comment, and by all means, leave us a rating. Uh, we'd love a good five-star rating so that our, our podcast can reach more people. If you're uh, listening or you're accessing through the Trinity Church Facebook page, we hope that you will follow. Uh, and we are going to do a whole number of things. So this is just the first of what I hope will be many uh, educational pieces. And so uh, with that, Uh, We wish you a good day and let's continue to learn together.